Hi, everybody. Give me a minute here. Carter wanted me to stand on this first, and I said, there's no way I'm standing on that. Okay. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Phil Nicholas. I'm an elder here uh, working uh, with the leadership here, and I, I love I love being at Crossbridge Brickle. I want to thank Carter for giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, there was the ladies' retreat this weekend, and there was a lot of activity around that, so he's afforded me this opportunity, and I, I really appreciate those opportunities. So today, uh, we're in our last uh, talk about our series, and um, we're exploring the story of Joseph this week, Joseph of the Old Testament. And when Carter told me that it was about Joseph, I was like, yes, Joseph, I love that story. I love it. It was, one of my, it was my favorite story, I think, when I was a kid. There was movies, there was coloring books, you know, there was just, it was great. I remember when uh, Donny Osmond became, uh, do you guys know who Donny Osmond is? Okay, some of you probably don't. But anyway, I remember when Donny Osmond played uh, Joseph on uh, Broadway in, the, in Joseph in the Coat of Many Colors, something like that. And I thought, God, what a lucky dude, man. He gets to play Joseph. That's so cool. So Joseph takes up about um, 13 chapters in the, in the end of Genesis. So uh, what time is it? What time? We'll take a break. We'll take a break. Uh, it's a lot, of, a lot to go through. Uh, no, I'm teasing. We're just going to cover the highlights of this story. But as we go through it, I want to spot a couple of themes and, and see if you guys pick this up. And I'll remind you, we'll see the steadfastness, uh, the steadfast love of Joseph, the steadfast obedience of Joseph, the steadfast grace of Joseph, and ultimately, we will see the Lord's redemptive purposes in this story and his working for his good throughout the entire story. The story centers around events that happened with Jacob and his sons. Jacob, also called Israel, was the grandson of Abraham. He was the son of Isaac. He was the heir of the great promises that were made to Abraham and then Isaac and then himself, that through his line, all nations on earth, all peoples on earth, would be blessed. He had 12 sons, and uh, they were a rough group. Uh, as you're going to see. But from these brothers, we get the 12 tribes of Israel. When the Jews were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, when they came out, they came out under the banners with the names of these 12 tribes. That's how they organized themselves. And now jo Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, is what this story is about. He's one of two sons that Jacob had with his beloved Rachel. Joseph was 17 years old when our story begins. And so we begin. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. In his old age, you know, Jacob had a lot of kids to raise. And you can imagine some of these brothers were far older than Joseph was. And you can imagine that Jacob was very busy while his sons were growing up. 
taking care of so many of them. But now in his old age, he's probably spending more time at home. And his son Joseph is being raised with him while his brothers, Joseph's brothers, are out taking care of the things that needed taken care of. And so we can imagine the fondness that Jacob grew for Joseph. He made him a coat, an ornate robe, a coat of many colors, we often hear it. And Joseph's older brothers, they did not like this favoritism at all. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. You know, sibling rivalry. For those of you that have brothers and sisters, you know what I mean by sibling, sibling rivalry as we compete for uh, scarce resources within the house. Uh, but perhaps there's a very uh, gaping father wound with these boys. So when they saw Jacob lavishing love on Joseph, it just made him angry. Whatever the case, the love for Joseph that he had had a very profound negative impact on the brothers. And it didn't help that Joseph had very profound dreams. And in those dreams, they intimated that one day his older brothers would bow down and serve him. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. What the, the naivete that Joseph has. Hey, guys, listen to this dream I had, okay? Imagine them looking around at each other like, they had a harsh reaction to this. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. The level of their hatred was hard to imagine. But their next step makes it plain. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Wow. I've got three brothers. There were four of us growing up. We were all pretty close in age. I was the oldest. And man, let me tell you, when my parents would work, we, we would have... We would have some fights. I'm sure a bystander watching us fight sometimes would think, those guys have a plot to kill each other. That's how we were. But we knew we didn't. But these brothers did. A plot to kill. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. And throw him into one of those cisterns. And say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Madness. It made me think of a verse from Ecclesiastes. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. Indeed. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. As they sat down to eat their meal, so casually, Joseph is in a well, not too far from them. And they're just sitting there casually eating their meal. Let's pause for a second, though. You know, what they did was horrific. What they did was horrific. 
But fill in the blank to this sentence, okay? This is you talking to yourself. I remember when I did blank. It was horrific. Yes, what these brothers did was horrific, but I think if we assess our lives, we could point to our own things that were horrific. We just happen to find ourselves in this story, but let's, but let's not forget it. So these Ishmaelites are on their way to Egypt. They pull Joseph out of that well, and they sell him. The brothers take Joseph's coat, his multicolored coat, and they take it, and they put blood on it, animal blood on it, and they take it back to Jacob, their father. Imagine Jacob's reaction to what appeared to be the death of his favorite son. He was devastated. The brothers did a terrible thing. And in Egypt, we find Joseph put up for auction, sold to a man named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. And Joseph was faithful to Potiphar. He was excellent at serving him. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favors in his eyes. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. God was with Joseph, and Joseph was steadfast in his obedience to his master. But a time came when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph would think nothing of it. Everything my master owns, he is entrusted to my care. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Look at Joseph's love and his faith. He does not say, how could I sin against my master? He says, how could I sin against God? Well, she kept trying, but he was steadfast in his obedience to God. He was steadfast in obedience to his master. However, one day Potiphar's wife tried again to seduce Joseph, and she grabbed him by his garment, and he fled, but the garment was in her clutch. And so when Potiphar got home, she showed it to him. That slave tried to seduce me, and Potiphar put him in prison. I want you to pause here and consider where we are at this point and how you would possibly feel betrayed by your brothers, stripped down and put into a well, sold by your brothers into slavery, sold at auction in a foreign land, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, unjustly thrown into prison. We can understand, right? Looking at all that and saying, where is God in all of this? You could imagine Joseph wondering, where, where is God? We can imagine the mountain of grief, depression, hopelessness that would be crippling to any normal person, but, but not to Joseph. But while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge. God is with Joseph. Joseph is 
he basks in his relationship with God, the comfort of God. It is, it is evident. It was, it was evident to the prisoners. Believers, when you know that God is with you, when you're basking in his presence, when you're feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, and you're basking in it, it is evident to the people around you. Again, Joseph is steadfast in his love of God and his obedience to those having authority over him. This, this time, the, the warden. In prison, Joseph met two men who had uh, positions with Pharaoh but were now in prison. You might have heard of their, of their positions, the cup bearer and the baker. And they said to Joseph, we, we have both had dreams, but there's, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Joseph knew that only God could interpret dreams. But Joseph knew that God was with him. And Joseph asked that the dreams be told to him, and so they did. Joseph is steadfast in his faith here, trusting in the Lord to be with him as he listens to these men's dreams. He interprets them, letting them both know what the future would hold for them, that they would be released from prison, and that they would face separate fates. To the cupbearer, Joseph asked that he remember Joseph to help him get out of prison. The cupbearer said he would, but the cupbearer forgot. And two more years passed while Joseph was in that prison. One day the Pharaoh had a dream, and when he wanted to know its meaning, the cupbearer realized, oh, I forgot Joseph. Pharaoh, there's someone in prison. His name's Joseph. He interpreted my dream. So Joseph was brought to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked Joseph to interpret his dream. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Again, Joseph is steadfast in his faith in God. How confident he was that God was with him. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream in remarkable fashion, that dream showed that there was a great famine that was about to hit Egypt and the surrounding areas, and Egypt needed to be prepared. And so Pharaoh put Joseph in charge. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He was assigned specific duties, and he carried them out flawlessly. He stored tons of grain to prepare for this famine, and there was plenty of grain for the many of years of famine to come. The famine hit Jacob and his family up where they were living, and the family uh, needed to eat. So Jacob sent his ten sons to Egypt to get grain. When they arrived in Egypt, they were led to Joseph. I want you to imagine the astonishing circumstances of this. God is clearly at work. The circumstances are too overwhelming. Can you imagine? So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him like his dream. Joseph recognized him, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. 
Let's imagine the impact this moment had on Joseph. Imagine the wound that had been reopened. A wound that had never fully healed. Imagine the trauma of that moment. He, he spoke harshly to them. You are spies and this is how you will be tested. And he put them all in custody for three days. I suspect he put him there for three days just so he could process this. Now the brothers must have been confused for in the moment they, they felt they were being treated unjustly. They weren't spies until the guilt and shame that they carried for what they did to Joseph probably came flooding back to the forefront of their minds. And they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but, he, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Years and years have passed since they did this to Joseph. And when this difficult thing happens to them, they attribute it to that. The shame and guilt they carried must have haunted them greatly. I can imagine every bad thing that happened to them during those years. They probably thought, yeah, this is happening because of what I did. You ever thought that way? You ever thought about maybe this is happening to me now because of what I once did? Well, Joseph was listening to them. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and he began to weep. Joseph carried his own memories. He was treated unjustly in cruelty those many years ago, but he had the deep memories of love and current memories of loss. He loved his brothers. He weeps. There's many other twists and turns that go on in this story, including Benjamin, the youngest son, also a son of Jacob and Rachel, was uh, brought to Joseph. And Benjamin eventually uh, brought, and now was with, Joseph had all of his brothers with him. And Joseph was deeply moved at the sight of his brothers. Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. This is not an angry Joseph. This is a man who is touched deeply by love and by loss. He loved his brothers. Later in the story, after a few other twists and turns, Joseph expresses his love again. Then Joseph could no longer control himself, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. You can imagine this scene, Joseph wailing in front of his brothers, getting rid of everyone else in the room, leaving just him and his brothers. Imagine his brothers going, what is going on? Then unable to take it any longer, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. 
Boom. They were terrified in his presence. Imagine the myriad of feelings they felt, the guilt and shame probably coming back. Some sort of divine justice is taking place here. Surely God is involved. How how is any of this possible? They were responsible for this. But Joseph assures them, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Look, there's a lot to this verse. Joseph alleviates his brother's fear. God did this. God did this. He sent me ahead of you to preserve lives and so much more. The ancestral line of every Jew came through these brothers. Every Jew that's ever lived came through these brothers. The ancestral line of the Messiah, Jesus, came through these brothers. One who would bring a greater deliverance one day. Joseph inquires about his dad. And he tells his brothers to bring him and their families to Egypt. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. He brings them to a better place, Goshen, the most fertile land in Egypt. And he says he will care for them because he loves them. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Imagine that scene, guys. And when they got on their way to go get Jacob and all their families, I I, I love this verse. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't, don't quarrel on the way. It's like a, the little kid in him came out. You know, sometimes when we suffer trauma when we're young, it stays with us, and there's, there's, there's something in us that's stunted at a very young age. And he remembered, he remembered his brothers. They always used to quarrel. He remembered. Hey, don't quarrel on the way. It's it's beautiful. So Jacob and his entire lineage, his sons, daughters, grandchildren, come to Egypt, and Joseph took care of them. And after about 17 years, Jacob died. And so, life goes on. Oh, no. Now that Jacob was dead, the brothers' shame and fear suddenly sweep in again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They were very worried. No man, they thought, could endure what we caused Joseph to endure. The heavy guilt and shame was still lying like a dark shadow. In their hearts and minds. So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God 
of your father. They were, they were terrified. They were afraid of judgment. They were afraid that Joseph would mete out his justice on them. They were very afraid. As it tells us in the New Testament, fear has to do with punishment. Certainly they felt punishment was going to happen. But in Joseph's mind, he had already forgiven his brothers. And he had shown them how much he had forgiven them. He, he brought them to Egypt. He was caring for them, celebrating their reunion. Thus, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. On the one hand, he probably could empathize with them and understand their fear. But on the other hand, he loved his brothers. But they did not understand his love because Joseph had a divine love. It was a love that transcends hatred, a love that transcends vengeance. But at the core of these brothers' hearts and minds, why are they seeking forgiveness again? There's a verse, I think it's in the Psalms, I think it's David, where he says, my sin is always before me. You know, I imagine when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had Bathsheba's husband murdered to cover up the fact that he got Bathsheba pregnant and then married Bathsheba to make it look like his child. I am, I am sure, and he was discovered and he was forgiven, but I am sure that through his life that haunted him. Paul. Paul was a great persecutor of the church, and he arrested Scores of people. He dragged men and women and children out of their house, had them imprisoned, had them executed before he became a believer. And although he was forgiven, I would imagine that Paul often thought about that. And maybe that was the thorn in Paul's flesh. How could he not think about it? Peter, when Peter denied knowing who Jesus was three times to a servant girl, even though Jesus forgave him, I imagine Peter thought about that moment from time to time. Have you ever done that? Do you realize you're, forgive, you're forgiven of your sin in Christ? But yet you still remember. It still haunts you. I know that, I, I know that I've done that. Well, that is what shame does to you. Shame is a soul-eating emotion. If you did a Google search, which I did, on the word shame, these are the types of pictures that you see. Any of those look familiar? Have you ever been in that posture? I think we all have. We've all experienced shame, and it's awful. Look at the, the little boy, the little boy picture right there. You guys can't see it. Uh, I can't read that. Nothing good. No, it says not good enough. Not good enough. And the man to the right, his face is completely marked out. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be seen. That's what shame does. That puts it well. 
Richard Caldwell, a psychologist, said this about shame. Shame is the inner experience of being not wanted. Shame is believing that one is not loved because one is not lovable. Shame is the worst thing because shame in its profoundest meaning conveys that one is not fit to live in one's own community. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they went and hid from God. They no longer felt fit, worthy to be in community with God. That's what happened to Peter. When they're, with their great catch of fish, this miracle that brought all this, all this fish into the boat, Peter realized it was a miracle. Peter realized who Jesus was, and he goes, Away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He could not, he did not feel fit to live in community with Jesus. That's what happened to the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes home, and what does he tell his father? Make me a servant. Fit to be called a son? Forget that. I blew that a long time ago. Make me a servant. And here, what about Joseph's brothers? What do they do? His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Shame and fear of judgment is always, always enslaving. Shame makes you feel like that you just do not belong and you will try to fix things, but you can't fix it. It's done. So how is shame and the fear of judgment removed? With a great pursuing love by the one that you've offended. As it says in John, perfect love casts out fear. I'll give you a, a personal example. My daughter, uh, Jennifer, when uh, she was in, in high school, she used to say, Dad, can I go to Vipers? What a name. It was an underage club, under 18 club, Vipers. I go, no, you're not going to Vipers. And she, she seemed, you know, she seemed kind of cool with it. So, okay. Well, anyway, when she graduated from high school, she got her high school yearbook, and she wanted to show it to me. And I always said, okay, honey, I'll, I, I will. I'll, let me, let me, you know, I'm really busy. And then one day she was spending the night at her friend Kelly's house. And uh, I had some laundry and I, of hers and I took it upstairs and I walked into her bedroom and I put it down and I look over on the bed and there's my daughter's yearbook. I go, huh. So, you know, she wanted me to look at it. So I grab it and I open it up. You know the margin notes that we make in yearbooks. There's a, a note from Kelly, the person whose house that she's at. She says, Jen, I'll never forget all the times we went to Vipers. <laughs> oh, boy. So I, I, call up, I call up Jennifer at Kelly's house. Kelly answers the phone. I said, hi, Kelly. This is Mr. Nicholas. Is Jennifer there? She puts Jen on. Hey, Dad. I go, hey. And that morning, I was supposed to take Jennifer to go to a gym and I was going to buy her a membership for a graduation present that morning. So I'm sure she's calling, thinking that's what I'm talking, calling to talk about. Hey, Dad. I said, hey, listen, uh, I was looking at your yearbook, and I saw a note from Kelly, and it said, I remember all the times we went to Vipers. Dead silence. And then I heard, 
the matter? You're going to be mad at me. No. I'm going to pretend like it never happened. So I went to pick her up. She comes out of that door, her backpack over her shoulder. Gets in the back seat. I start backing out, start driving away. After a little while, she goes, where are we going? I go, oh, we're going to go get your gym membership, remember? She cried the whole way. I loved her, but she expected only justice. Grace shook her to her core. And that's what grace does. I'm sure Peter, the fellowship and restoration, after he denied knowing Christ three times, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And restores him, calls him into service. The prodigal son, the father, throwing that party for him. I bet that son is just (laughs) amazed. And us, with our guilt and shame that we carry, I'm going to adapt John 3.16 a little bit here. God so loved us with a great, pursuing, perfect love that he sent his only begotten son to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, to pay the debt of death for our sin, removing our shame forever. The great, pursuing love of God removes our shame. And look how Joseph deals with his brother's guilt and shame here. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. First, he lets them know he's not going to judge them because he's not God. It's up to God to judge them. He's not going to take the place of God. And therefore, his brothers have nothing to fear from him. Second, he reminds them that God is in control. God intended this for good. And if God intended this for good, then who was he to judge his brothers? Finally, Joseph shows them grace. He pursues them with a great pursuing love. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. For all the reasons that he could justify to treat them as criminals... He treated them as family. As it says in the New Testament, for us who have been saved through Christ, we are no longer a slave. We are a child of God. He belongs to them. Joseph to his brothers. And they belong to him. A great pursuing love. And now our our final point. Let's go back to this statement where it says that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. We could easily question, God intended all these horrible things for good? First, we need to identify what God is not saying. God is not saying that these things were good. These things were evil. 
It was evil that happened to Joseph. It wasn't good. But what God is saying is that he's using all circumstances to bring about his good. It's hard for us to imagine in the moment because we only have a view of what's going on in, in the moment. I mean, take, for instance, when Christians were thrown to lions, men, women, and children thrown to lions. Where's the good in that? It's not good. It's evil. Men intend it for evil. But God will use it for his good purposes. Stated differently, men had their intentions, but God is going to trump those intentions. God is going to trump those intentions and use this for his good. And with those Christians thrown to the lions, the martyrs fanned the flame of faith throughout the world, even to today, to millions of people. Take the cross of Christ, for example. Evil. Don't you think, imagine whatever friends of his were there, followers were there, don't you think they wanted this to stop? Don't you think they would have loved it if the crucifixion stopped? Of course, but God had a greater good in store. Look, if you define good by what's happening to you, then you're missing it, and you're creating idols. For example, when things are going great, you know, with your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your job, kids, making good money, God is good. But when those things start heading south, in a big way, in a big way God's not fixing it, then we may start questioning God. I like how Tim Keller put this describing idols. You know if you have an idol when it's your point of integration. And you know whether or not it's your point of integration. If it starts being damaged, you disintegrate. That's how you know that you have an idol. Joseph never once discriminated, dis disintegrated because he was integrated with God. That was his integration point. Notwithstanding his circumstances, because he knew that God was good. Good is what God thinks. It's not what we think. When we only define good by what we think, then we're playing God. God is the creator. He's the designer. He's the fulfiller. He is the definition of good. He defines good, not you and me. Because God is God and because he loves us with a great pursuing love, then we can trust him. We can trust him for the greater good. And we will see it ultimately as good. You know, we live in the moment. We don't see the mighty hand of God until we can look back. You know, Joseph was able to look back at all that happened to him 
And it was good. He could see the evil and how God used all of it, notwithstanding to this point. He saw it. You know, as a okay, older person, I, I can look back over my life and I, I, I see, I, I see how God used, <laughs> used my evil even to bring me to a, a greater good. And I think that, you know, 20 years from now, if the Lord lets me live that long, I'm going to look back at that point to here and see all the messes and how God used that to bring me to a greater good, his good, his purposes. My friend Andrew, some of you met Andrew. He uh, died a few years from Lou Gehrig's disease, an absolutely awful disease. And uh, when I met him, he was an atheist, and he liked to talk with me so about my crazy belief in God and stuff. So we had, we had fun talking. And he actually came to Miami, and uh, he went on a retreat. And he started thinking there maybe there's something to this, and he really started exploring Christianity. But then his wife told him, I didn't marry a Christian, and if you continue down this path, we're getting a divorce. And so Andrew kind of withdrew from dialogue about God. I, I could tell. He, he, lived in, uh, he lived in England at the time. Our phone calls became very non-religious, you know, typical phone calls. But okay, I wasn't going to push this on him. But then a couple years later, he called me to tell me that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And he said, Phil, you know, I put my faith on the shelf for two years. I'm not going to do that anymore. I said, okay. He said, I want you to know that I've thrown away every single book you ever gave me. I said, that's okay. There's plenty more where, the, where those books came from. I was there at Andrew's baptism in, in England. At that point, he couldn't move anything in his body except his neck a little bit. And at the baptism, he was in his wheelchair and they covered... Was, it's a Baptist church. They couldn't dunk him. But they, they put all kinds of plastic all over him. They had a big old tub of water they were just going to pour on him. And they asked him, Andrew, do you recognize yourself as a sinner in the eyes of God, deserving of his justice? And do you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your Savior who died for you on the cross to forgive you of your sins and rose from the dead? And Andrew kind of strained his neck a little bit. And in his English accent, he went, I most certainly do. You know, I was with Andrew when he, the, the day before he died, and he told me he couldn't move his neck anymore and he couldn't speak. He only used eye, his eyes on this technology, this computer technology. He could look at it and it would spell words and then the computer would read out the, the words. And he said, uh, he typed out, I'm ready. I went, I looked at him and go, ready for what? And he, and he typed out, to meet Jesus. So we said our goodbyes. Evil, Lou Gehrig's disease, evil. But if it had never happened, Andrew might have just kept on living his life. And God used it. 
for a greater good. And as, as, as Joseph's story shows us, and this is the challenge for us, guys. This is the challenge uh, for us. We're going to experience very unexpected, severe hardship in our life. We will. But God is good, and he will work all things for his good. And God's good is good indeed. You know, things might be a little cloudy for us today. We can't see that clearly, but I assure you that each and every one of us, when we're with him, we will look back over our lives and we will see his loving, purposeful hand. Joseph could have easily focused on the moment. He could have focused on his sufferings. He could have been angry with God, but you see, he trusted God. He loved God no matter what happened to him. He knew and rested in the fact that God was with him, that God knew what was going on, that God knew what was good. He just didn't have to worry about it. And the far greater good, this is what we'll end with, the far greater good that this series, this great series we've been doing, of events through Abraham's life and Isaac's life and Jacob's life, now these brothers' lives, would ultimately lead to the most amazing deliverance of all. When Joseph was on his deathbed, he blessed his sons. He gave them each a blessing. And if you read these blessings, they, were, they weren't all the best blessings, okay? But when he got to Judah, Jacob blessed him, saying, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. The coming Messiah, the eternal king, who would have the obedience of the nations, would come through the line of Judah. Jesus. He is the better Joseph. He is steadfast in his love for God and for his people. He is steadfast in his obedience to his father, even to the point of death on the cross. He is steadfast in his grace, removing our guilt, our shame forever to the glorious good of God. As we close out our series, all of these circumstances in the life of these biblical patriarchs was to bring about this greater deliverance of all. The Lord always works towards the good. We are part of a bigger story. It is so big. And he calls us to trust him and to rest in him, to place ourselves under his sovereign care according to his good plans. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and these, and these brothers. Thank you, Father, that we see your purposes, your, your sovereignty over men. Your purposes will be fulfilled, and you will use all circumstances to fulfill them. And your purposes for us, Father, is a great 
good. And you will use all of our circumstances to lead us to that greater good. And one day we will see it and we will recognize it as a good. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.